Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For the past four weeks, we have been looking deeply at this passage from verses 12 through 22, spelling out our responsibilities, your responsibilities as a congregation, particularly as it relates to creating a kind of a culture that every church ought to aspire to, a culture that facilitates spiritual growth. Uh, that's not something that, that is uh, just in the hands of the leadership, and it's not something that just is happenstance. Uh, it isn't something that's random. It arises out of a particular commitment, a particular understanding by the people of God. There are a number of places in Scripture that identify that. Ephesians chapter 4, for example, talks about the kind of church body that is ministering to itself in such a way that it builds itself up in love and is no longer children tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. In other words, there's a spiritual stability that comes to a congregation whenever it is properly functioning the way that it ought to be. Well, this passage really gets into the weeds a little bit, gives us some of the details of what that proper functioning looks like within a church. And we've been, we've been trying to identify all the component parts here, 14 different commands or imperatives that Paul gives to us in these short, succinct statements. And we've taken the time really necessary to understand how each one of them impacts the overall culture an environment in a church, how it creates a culture of spiritual growth, or conversely, how you might say how the neglect of these things hinders or impedes spiritual growth within a church. So we began a few weeks ago looking at issues of leadership in verse 12, how we need uh, to identify leaders according to their labor. We have that responsibility to to look around and find those who are laboring the way that leaders ought to labor, the way that spiritual leaders demonstrate themselves. We need to identify them. Secondly, we need to esteem them according to their work or for the labor that they're doing. And then he commands in verse 13 that we maintain peace. We maintain peace among ourselves and we maintain peace with those leaders in particular. Fourth, He addresses responsibilities that we have outside of that to all the various kinds of people that we interact with within the church and all the various situations, whether it's responsibilities to admonish the unruly or responsibilities to encourage the faint-hearted or or responsibilities to help the weak or in general, no matter what the ministry situation, just the responsibility to be patient with everyone. Because a church that has a culture of spiritual growth is a church that no matter where people are coming from spiritually, they are prepared, or a church is prepared, I should say, and willing to work with them in order to see them grow. That kind of patience, that kind of readiness and willingness to minister to people in whatever circumstances, whatever spiritual state that they're in, doesn't come naturally. It is the evidence of a spiritually tuned life. And so Paul goes in that direction. He includes commands and responsibilities that that you have to maintain in your inner attitudes. He begins in verse 15 with your responsibility to refrain from retaliation. You don't return evil for evil or the responsibility to 
in verse 16, rejoice at all times, or pray without ceasing in verse 17, or give thanks in all circumstances. And all of this really describes the Godward focus that a church must maintain if it's going to create a culture of spiritual growth. A confidence that in all of the the ins and outs and the warp and the woof and the ups and downs of of ministry life with all the difficulties as well as all the, the blessings that you maintain a focus on God, that you don't panic, that you don't abandon, that you don't turn your back on ministry because it may be going poorly at times, but you are always focused in on Him, praying at all times, rejoicing in all these circumstances, giving thanks at all times, understanding His sovereignty. So that as you minister to people, deal with the hurts and the offenses that inevitably come in any church life, a culture that creates spiritual growth is a place where people are constantly praying, constantly giving thanks, constantly seeing God at work bringing these things together for good. And consequently, they are not in the practice of returning evil for evil, but showing patience to everyone. Now, in that kind of an environment, There is no hardship, no trouble that will thwart spiritual growth. In that kind of environment, there's no obstacle, there's no upheaval that will thwart spiritual growth. In fact, every every upheaval, every obstacle just becomes another opportunity for greater spiritual growth. I mean, you can't defeat a church like that, right? Right? A church that is willing to see God's hand in the good and the bad. A church that's willing to rejoice at all times and pray without ceasing. You can't defeat a group of people like that because every every upheaval just creates more opportunity for trust, more opportunity for prayer, more opportunity for sacrifice, more opportunity for dying to yourself, and more opportunity for Christ-likeness. And so both the people that you're working with and all their various spiritual weaknesses or or deficiencies and the people who are having to work with them through patience and, and gentleness, all of them are seeing God at work in their lives. Now, even with all of that, and that, that describes a wonderful kind of ministry to be a part of, but even with all of that, you can still... Find yourself in a place, in an environment where spiritual growth is thwarted, where it's not happening, where it's hindered, if you're missing the final ingredient that Paul talks about in verses 19 through 22. And that is the element, if you want to just summarize all those verses, the element of discernment. Discernment, which is basically the ability to judge things well. That's what it means. I mean, you can look it up in just about any dictionary. You get some form of, of uh, meaning like that. It, it is the quality to be able to make sound judgments of right and wrong, good and bad, uh, what is helpful and not helpful. It's a quality, unfortunately, that is neglected in the modern church. It is looked on with contempt. I saw an interesting graphic this week that uh, did a survey of all books available in digital form over the last 200 years. And it surveyed all of those books 
And, and the graph showed particularly this word discernment has fallen by 80% in published material. In other words, if you go back 200, 180, even 150 years and just look at the kinds of things that people were writing about and the kinds of things people were reading, you would find five times more interest in the whole idea of discernment than you would in anything being published in the current era. People have lost interest in discernment. It's no longer a marketable kind of strategy to talk about it, to emphasize it, to build your church around it. In fact, if you, um, if you hear anything about discernment today, you're more likely to hear a reference to some sort of mystical sense of perception, uh, a, a sort of uh, uh, an idea that bypasses any sound judgment and relies on intuition or impulses rather than making real judgments. The whole idea of discernment, this ability to make judgments about what is good and what is bad, is being extinguished in the midst of a culture of relativity. A culture that doesn't want to make any kind of definitive judgment about what is good or what is bad. The prevailing notion today is that issues of morality and issues of wisdom are determined subjectively, individually, sort of culturally. They just sort of arise out of your background, but there's no such thing as as universals that can be applied in every situation, every church. And any attempt to do that is labeled negative, negatively as perhaps judgmentalism. True discernment isn't looked on as something desirable. What is desirable in the eyes of most today is tolerance and openness and flexibility and laxity. That's the kind of environment people want. They want the kind of environment where there's not going to be a lot of scrutiny, where folks are going to be open to whatever their choices are. And those who are eager to make judgments about what is good and bad are looked at as not a help, but a threat to spiritual growth. In fact, this is the kind of antithesis of a culture that most people want to seek out in a church. You hear their little statements all the time. Uh, I was reading some this week. Those who judge never understand, and those who understand never judge. That's a very pithy saying that you probably see hung on a wall from time to time. Or you read something like this, judging another person doesn't define who they are, it defines who you are. Can't define me. You're not allowed to make judgments about me. Or those who point fingers do nothing but reveal how unclean their own hands are. So this is what people desire. They want an environment where no one is pointing out error, where no one is defining right and wrong, where no one is really making judgments at all. All of this is intended to shame you or me or anyone, to shame you into abandoning any attempt at discernment. But that viewpoint really demonstrates a general blindness, a confusion about where spiritual growth really flourishes. 
the kinds of environment where it really takes place. And Paul couldn't be more clear on this issue. And our passage this morning reveals that, again, by its succinct and crisp statements. His words are all the more forceful regarding the responsibility that you and I have to develop true discernment within the life of a church. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is simply a call for discernment. A call to take it seriously. A call to make judgments. A a call to test. To reject the false. To hold fast to the true. And it's clear from the context that none of that is contrary to. To the Holy Spirit. None of that necessarily thwarts the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul sees it as completely working in conjunction with an environment that fosters the Holy Spirit. This isn't contrary to spiritual life. In fact, it is essential. If you ever want to see true spiritual growth in your life, in your family, in your congregation then you must become committed to discernment, to discerning what is right and what is wrong. You must embrace the need to test everything and to hold fast to what is true. People aren't brought up that way. They're brought up in their traditions. They're brought up just to sort of accept what makes them feel comfortable. They're brought up to to not want to be under scrutiny They're brought up to just sort of stay in their ruts. But you and I can't settle for that. You and I must be those who are willing to take a hard look at ourselves, at our beliefs, at our practices, at our life, and put it to the test. Now, as Paul's spelling this out, he does it as he's done with the rest of this list with a series of imperatives. And, and really, there are, are a number that make up these, these final um, list here. We, we can break it down, I believe, into three responsibilities, though, that create this culture of growth. And it begins with a discussion of gifts and prophecy, specifically verse 19. Your responsibility not to quench the Holy Spirit. Your responsibility not to quench the Holy Spirit. That's his command in verse 19. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. And it's a general command. He'll get to the specific command in in verse uh, 20 whenever he talks about not uh, denying prophecies. But here, first of all, he gives the general principle. You are to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit. And you are to be eager not to quench him. The image is simple enough. The idea of quenching is putting out a flame or putting out a lamp of some sort. And it's used that way in other places of the New Testament, putting out lamps. But here, Paul applies it to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is often pictured in the Old Testament and the New Testament as a fire or, or at least associated with fire. 
And so it makes sense that he would use it in that way. You remember even he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Timothy is to do what? He's to fan the flame. 2 Timothy 1.6. Fan the flame of the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. So this is to be our general attitude when it comes to spiritual gifts. We're not to impede them. We're not to douse them. In fact, if anything, we're to fan them. We're to want to see them flourish and grow in our midst. We're supposed to understand that spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. They come as the specific gifts of God. They're sovereignly and providentially bestowed. And to stand opposed to them is to stand opposed to God. 1 Corinthians 14, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that not only does God give gifts to individual people, but it says he arranges the members in the body each one of them as he so chooses. So not only are gifts given by God, but the, the, the particular makeup of spiritual gifts in every congregation is itself a unique formula that God has made up for every local congregation. Your particular gift, my particular gift, is specifically determined by God and you have been placed in this congregation with your particular gift because of a need that God is aware of that he wants to have fulfilled by you and it's particular it is situational you might even say another way to say that there's no gift that is operating in a church that God didn't put there And if there's a need in any particular church, God raises up a gifted person to meet that need. And so consequently, we need to recognize that for us to neglect or deny or quench any gift, to not really fully utilize any gift, is really to thwart the work of God and to hurt ourselves as the body of Christ. And so what we need to do is we need to orient ourselves toward nurturing spiritual gifts. We need to kindle the flame. We need to fan the flame of the gifts that God has given, both in yourself and in the lives of other people. You need to do everything you can, if you're gifted in some way, to be equipped to use that gift. There are people who would claim to be a part of a church, or even this church, and yet... They, on a week-in and week-out basis, make zero contribution to the life of the church, other than maybe just showing up here and sitting through a sermon or two. But they're doing nothing with the gift that, that God has given to them. They're doing nothing to equip themselves. They're doing nothing to refine themselves. They're doing nothing to further their gift. They're doing nothing to fan into flame. They have no awareness of the fact that that there might be a need right here in this church that they could be meeting because they're so focused on their own life, on their own pursuits, on their own uh, careers or whatever it might be. You and I are not to be that way. We're to orient ourselves to this purpose of nurturing 
spiritual gifts, nurturing it in ourselves or even equipping and facilitating and encouraging and nurturing gifts in other people to build up others in their gift. And this is what Paul's talking about here. His primary focus is not to, or is to get you not to quench the Holy Spirit either in your own life or in the gifts of others. His primary focus is to prevent you from quenching the Holy Spirit, maybe primarily in the life of others. That's his focus, at least here. In other words, this is a call for you to recognize the the importance and the usefulness and the significance of every gift of every person who's around you. Because these gifts have come from God. And it should go without saying that no one would have a gift unless God thought it was important. And so no one has a gift unless God understood that there was a need for it. And God wouldn't give it unless he intended to use it. It's like 1 Corinthians 12. You know, we're a body. And a body has all of its constituent parts. And has eyes and ears and hands and feet. And a body without a hand, and a body without a foot, and a body without an ear, and a body without an eye is a body that is deficient in some way. And so every gift is necessary. And you cannot just focus on one particular gift. You can't focus on your particular gift or or the two or three gifts that you yourself are interested in or you yourself even find edifying to diminish the other gifts of the Spirit, to do that would be quenching the Spirit's work in the lives of all these other people. And you need to celebrate their gifts. You need to rejoice in their gifts. You need to develop an interest, an attentiveness, an inquisitive, uh, inquisitiveness even in the gifts of others around you, to appreciate them. And God begins to open your eyes to the ways that these gifts are being used or even could be used around you. Now, all of that, you might say, is the general principle. That's the general idea of what Paul's saying. Recognize the importance and significance of every spiritual gift and do everything you can to help it flourish. But then in verse 20, he moves from the general to the specific. In their situation, he tells them, and this is really our 13th uh, responsibility for creating a a culture of spiritual growth, he tells them that they have a responsibility not to despise the Word of God. Not to despise the Word of God. Now, I lay it out in that fashion, even though Paul says there in verse 21, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Excuse me, in verse 20. It's important that we understand what Paul's saying here especially since it comes in a passage that places so much emphasis on discernment. It's critical that we look clearly and carefully at what Paul is asking for and what the implications are for you and me. Because he's just urged us not to quench the Spirit. And in in verse 21 and 22, he will urge us to test everything. But here... He's giving a very specific reference to the spiritual gift of prophecy. How are we to weigh all of that? Well, I think to understand what Paul's saying here, first of all, you need to understand the way prophecy worked in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament era. 
God tells us that in the beginning of the church, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And moreover, in Ephesians 2.20, He tells us that among all those that were given, He tells us that the apostles and the prophets, those first two that were named, were uniquely foundational to the church. The church, he says in Ephesians 2.20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So they're uniquely foundational. Now, the reason that these two offices served as the foundation is because they were given during a time in the church when there was no other source of authority, there was no other source of instruction apart from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And certainly while that was viewed with reverence as the Word of God, it was read on a regular basis every Sunday, the the Scripture would have been read from the Old Testament. Still, there was a recognition that the Old Testament did not provide specific answers, specific directions for how churches were supposed to operate on a day-in and day-out basis. The Old Testament didn't give the direction for the practical matters of the Christian life, and particularly for all these Gentiles who were coming into the church. And so God gave apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of the church in such a time when there was no New Testament Scripture, in such a time until he could fully reveal the New Testament, which would then take the place of these apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets functioned in the New Testament church much the same way that the New Testament scriptures would later function. They would provide specific instruction, direction, encouragement in the life of believers. Now, you see that if you just looked through the New Testament. We don't have time to trace it all through, but you could just write down this list and sort of follow it up uh, later on in your own life. But if you just look through the ways that prophecy is described in the New Testament, you see this happening exactly as I just described. For example, in, in the selection and appointment of leadership, you see prophecy active. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that he was, he was given a gift by the laying on of hands of the elders and the presbytery. Later on, he tells them that this gift came by word of a prophecy. In other words, the way that they identified leaders before they had any New Testament scripture to know what the qualifications of a leader is supposed to look like before they had any direction at all, the way they identified leaders was by the hands of prophets. In fact, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Silas, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas, who were in the church at Antioch, were told were ministering there among the other prophets. And the word of the Lord came and said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the ministry to which I've called them. In other words, leadership was identified by supernatural prophecy. Secondly, you have warnings that were given to the church. In the ministry of Agabus, for example, in Acts chapter 20 and 21, you see Agabus who was active within the church giving warnings about what would take place later on so that, so that believers could be guarded and protected and, and could operate with discernment. 
You see hope being given. Paul in Acts chapter 27 receives a word from the Lord during a time of, of, uh, of uh, danger on a boat. And the Lord gives him very specific uh, uh, prediction of the future that no life will be lost if people follow a certain pathway, a certain guidance. And so it provides hope during, during times of, of trial. You see confrontation of sins by by uh, prophets. You see direction on key decisions by prophets. You see exhortation to trust by prophets. It was a prophet in Acts chapter 11 who told about a, a, um, a famine that was coming up in the area of Judea and instructed and gave direction to the church on how it ought to respond to that. So they took up an offering and sent it to the believers who were there. So you see all of that taking place through the life and the ministry of prophets in the New Testament. Well, it's interesting, if you look into the Old Testament, you begin to look at prophets, and you ask yourself, how did prophets function in the Old Testament? Well, very similarly. You see prophets involved with the selection and the appointment of leadership. Samuel, for example, a prophet who was involved with the selection of kings in Israel. You see confrontation of sins in, for example, the life of Nathan. You see direction on key decisions, for example, through the ministry of Isaiah. You see warnings through prophets like Jonah or Jeremiah. You see hope through all the ministry of the minor prophets or exhortations to trust that you can find in abundance throughout the Old Testament prophets. All the things that you see prophets doing in the New Testament, you see them doing in the Old Testament. Why? Because the source of the prophecy is the same. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. A prophet is someone who receives supernatural revelation from God. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if God is the source of their messaging, that they're operating in the same way. This was the understanding of a prophet. A prophet is someone who receives supernatural revelation knowledge from God. You remember Jesus at the woman in the, with the woman at a well in, in John chapter 4, and he's talking to her, and they're dialoguing about who she is and her background, and, and she eventually tells Jesus that she's not married, and Jesus says, you've spoken true. You've been married, uh, what, five times, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What is her response? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. It wasn't because he quoted scripture. It wasn't because he was preaching to her. But she recognized that the gift of prophecy is this ability to have supernatural knowledge. And so this is what happens in the New Testament. When you see prophets, just like in the Old Testament, they are people who are operating in, in unique time in the history of the church before there was any scripture new testament scripture to give specific direction they were operating in a way that could give god's direction to the church by miraculous and supernatural knowledge now as paul's writing the book of first thessalonians this is a book that was written in probably 50 or 51 a.d it was Written at a time when the church had already been born, it had been in existence for 17 or 18 years, uh, having been born after the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, and now having passed uh, perhaps almost two decades. 
And this letter itself is one of the earliest New Testament letters. There might have been one, maybe two letters that were written before this, but there wasn't some abundance of New Testament literature out there. It wasn't as if letters had been written and copied and recopied and circulated all throughout the church. They weren't even written at this point for the most part. And so this Thessalonian church, which itself had only been in existence for about a year, were in very foundational times. They had only had the Apostle Paul with them for three months. And so the gift of prophecy was active in their midst and would still have been active at this point. As Paul would later tell the Corinthians, there will come a time when prophecy will cease. He says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, Now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is complete or full comes, then that partial prophecy will cease. But they weren't at that point yet. At this point in the history of the church, that's not what had happened. Prophecy was still active. This was the means by which the church heard and understood the Word of God before the New Testament was written. And so, for them to despise prophecy would be for them to disregard the Word of God. For them to despise prophecies would be for them to no longer have an ear for what God says for how God directs, for what God thinks or cares about a situation. Now, why would someone do that? I mean, why would someone despise prophecy? Why would someone quench the spirit of prophecy in that way? Well, we're not told in this passage, but we know from a couple of other instances why it happened. For example, uh, Numbers chapter 11, the, the spirit of God came on two men, Eldad and Medad, in the camp of Israel, and we're told that they begin to prophesy within the camp of Israel. And when it's reported to Moses and Joshua, Joshua says to Moses, my Lord Moses, stop them. I mean, he wants it to be brought to an end immediately. But Moses says to him, Numbers eleven twenty nine, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were all prophets and that the Lord would put a spirit on all of them. In other words, one of the things that sometimes thwarted prophecy was simple, old-fashioned jealousy. People simply didn't like the prominence that would come to the mouthpiece that God chose to use whenever he revealed his word. And so perhaps the same thing is happening in Thessalonica, just old-fashioned jealousy. Members who were jealous of the attention that was given to people with the gift of prophecy. They didn't want to give up that kind of prominence within the church. And so other people who were being used by God to reveal the word of God were, were being disrespected, were being despised. And the word of God wasn't being fully spoken. Or 
Secondly, in 1 Corinthians, there was another thing uh, that was going on there that sort of diminished prophecy, if you will. The Corinthian church was undervaluing prophecy because they were craving some ecstatic experience, some emotional experience, rather than something that engaged their mind. And Paul enters into this, this monologue with them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he's contrasting the kinds of gifts that they were seeking after versus prophecy. And the kinds of gifts that they were seeking after were those gifts which he said led to no understanding. It didn't engage your mind. It wasn't cognitive. It wasn't intellectual. It wasn't any of that stuff. And yet still they called it worship because they wanted some emotional, ecstatic experience. And so he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, and no one understands him. He, just, he utters mysteries in the spirit, he says. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their edification and encouragement and consolation. And he says, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church can be edified, can be built up. So this is what was taking place in Corinth. They were seeking after other gifts other than prophecy. They were seeking after things even like tongues, even though there was nothing that they understood about it. They didn't understand it themselves and no one who listened to them understands And yet they called it worship. This is what they yearned after. This is what they desired. They were putting their emphasis on the gift of tongues, even without an interpreter. And Paul says it is fruitless. It doesn't edify anyone. It's even fruitless for the one who's speaking, as Paul will later say, if he doesn't understand his own words. And so it could be, that some people simply despised prophecy or rejected prophecy because they didn't want to fill up their worship with all of this instruction. They didn't want to fill up their worship with all this direction and warning. They wanted the experience. They wanted the ecstatic, emotional kind of thing going on. This is what they were interested in. They weren't interested in actually growing in their understanding. They wanted something less mental, less intellectual, or whatever. They associated their worship with ecstatic experience. And consequently, they despised prophecies. Or it could be like so many times in the Old Testament where people simply didn't like the message they were hearing. They just simply didn't like the rebuke. They didn't like the warning. They didn't like the the conviction. And so they rejected prophecy. They threw Jeremiah in a pit. They threatened to kill Isaiah. They over and over again rejected prophecy because they rejected the word of God. But Paul understood that if a church is ever going to continue to grow spiritually, it must be attentive when God speaks. It must be attentive when God speaks. What does Jesus say? 
man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. You, you cannot diminish any of them. You must be attentive to every word of God. Whether it comes by Scripture, whether it comes by the mouth of a prophet, you have to be attentive to it. And so Paul understood, particularly for this church, who didn't even have a New Testament Scripture at this point, Paul understood that in order to have a culture of spiritual growth, that they couldn't be settled for just simply something they heard from him whenever he was with them for three months, that they needed to be constantly hearing from God. They needed to be constantly attentive to his word. They couldn't let it be set aside. Now, when Paul says that to these Thessalonians, that they should be attentive to prophecy and not despise it, He recognizes the inherent danger. And that really brings us to our 14th and final responsibility for creating this culture of spiritual growth, which is your responsibility then to test everything. Test everything. Judgments, discernment, examination. Put everything under the light of God's truth and make a determination about what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. You can see the contrastive particle there right at the beginning. But test. Don't despise prophecies, but test them. Because prophecy has an inherent danger that doesn't come with the revealed Word of God. Prophecy has an inherent danger because it comes from a singular vehicle, the individual voice of a man or a woman, and it has the potential for being unverified or false prophecy. That potential is high. That's why... Anytime there is prophecy, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, God has always been interested in having it tested. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Bible speaks about this process. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 20 tells us that prophets needed to be put to the test. He says in verse 20, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I've not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So in other words, a prophet certainly who's who's presuming to speak for other gods, but even a prophet who comes claiming to be a prophet of the God of Israel, one who presumes to speak in my name, if he speaks presumptuously, a death sentence. And if you say in your heart, well, how will we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet spoke it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. Very simple. 
It's not complicated. A prophet, if he is speaking for God, is true. Easy enough. A prophet, if he's speaking for God, speaks with God's accuracy. A prophet, if he's speaking, thus saith the Lord, he speaks with as much accuracy as any other prophet who says, thus saith the Lord. He speaks with as much accuracy as Isaiah, as much accuracy as as, uh, Jeremiah, as much accuracy as Malachi, as John the Baptist. He speaks with as much accuracy as any prophet. Because every true prophet is known by this one simple test. Everything he says comes true. That's why if he ever makes a single mistake, death sentence. He doesn't get a mulligan. He doesn't say, ah, oh, you know, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I, I kind of, you know, I spit and I sputtered and I kind of said it the wrong way. No, no, bring out the stones. So determining a true and a false prophet was pretty simple. If what the prophet said is true, he's a true prophet. If it comes true, he's a true prophet. If he speaks error in any way, he's not. That's why you see in the modern era people who want to claim that prophecy is still active among us and they want to deny that prophecy has ceased. What they're doing is this constant attempt to dumb down prophecy because they know that no human being can be held to that standard. And so all the, all the books on prophecy today, all the modern prophets, you know, they're always trying to come up with some roundabout explanation to come up with all of their uh, inaccuracies. I mean, the most famous, I think, was, was uh, perhaps in the church on the way, that well-known uh, uh, four-square church, I believe it is, in Los Angeles. And they were going through a pastoral transition, and the new pastor was up on the stage And uh, some outside evangelist was prophesying over him about how he was going to be used by God in a worldwide ministry. And and thousands, if not millions, were going to come to know Christ because of him. And he drops dead right on the spot. I'd say that was inaccurate. (laughs) But this is the way prophecy is done today some sort of manufactured, man-made guys that can't stand up to this scrutiny. The standard of testing in the Old Testament was clear. And so there's no reason why you would think the standard would change in the New Testament. There's nothing to indicate that it would change at all. And Paul understands that. While we're reading a book from a period of time when prophecy was active, it doesn't mean that in the New Testament era, God somehow somehow stuttered when he spoke. Prophecy is the word of God and comes with the accuracy of God and therefore a prophet needs to be tested. A prophet needs to be tested. That's what you find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And while Paul doesn't give the criteria that the Old Testament gives us, he just tells us to test it. It's pretty clear how you go about that when you just look at the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes in verse 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing 
are a commandment of God. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he's not to be recognized. There you see it. Very simple again. Clear, black, and white. It's a simple test. Anyone who claims to be a prophet, the first order of business is that he must affirm and acknowledge the truthfulness of apostolic doctrine. He must affirm and acknowledge the truthfulness of apostolic doctrine. And the implication is that nothing he would say would ever deny or contradict that. If he doesn't do that or if he if he doesn't affirm that or if he contradicts that, Paul's solution is don't recognize him. He's not a true prophet. And even here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you look down at verse 27, it's interesting. Paul puts them under an oath. An oath. Read this letter to the other brethren. There's no call for them to first examine the letter. Paul doesn't say, oh, and by the way, take my letter and kind of look through it and find out, you know, what test it, put it to the test and find out what's good and what's bad. He doesn't do that. There's an assumption that apostolic doctrine was the standard. There was an assumption that they would Uh, would accept this letter as authoritative. The revealed truth by the the apostles written down in the New Testament letters, like 1 Corinthians, like 1 Thessalonians, always took precedent over any supposed prophecy. And all those prophecies were to be examined based on what is revealed in the New Testament. Is to be judged by apostolic teaching because it would eventually be replaced by apostolic teaching. It would eventually be replaced by the New Testament. Nevertheless, Paul doesn't want them to turn a deaf ear to God's word at this point in the history of the church. They need to be eager to hear it, whether... It comes from a prophet in their midst or whether it comes from a letter by an apostle. He understood the necessity for the church to have a listening ear for the word of God. Testing done by the standard of scripture. And when you see that, when you hear that, when you do that, you foster a a kind of a, a spiritual growth. Now, people just... Just to be frank, people don't like that. There are some people who believe that's a problem. They believe that almost any time someone begins to examine things, almost any time someone becomes concerned about being consistent with the Bible in everything, that you fall into, by necessity, Pharisaism. There's a They believe that this is this problem that the Pharisees had. They were too interested in searching the Scriptures, in defining out all the little things of life by the Scriptures. And it led to a rigid and inflexible and spiritually dead type of religion. And they would quote to you John 5, 29, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Well, the problem is the rest of that verse actually affirms that about the Scripture. 
You search the scriptures because you think them that, that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, the problem is not with the scriptures. It's with the reader. And Jesus says, the father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one who sent him. Excuse me, who sent me. The problem is not that the Pharisees became too focused on the Scripture. The problem is they didn't really believe the Scripture they were reading. Or they were reading it selectively. They were reading it partially. And so Paul's command here is that we examine, that we analyze, that we take the standard of apostolic teaching, we take the standard of the Word of God, and we, we do a test. And what do we do, he says? You hold fast to, you cling to, you tenaciously uh, bear down on what is good. It's almost this idea of wrestling for something. And then conversely, abstain from what? Evil? No. Every form of evil. Why does he say that? He doesn't say every form of good. He just says hold to what is good, but abstain from Every form of evil. Why is that? Because if you don't realize that evil is constantly changing form. It's always evil at its core, but its presentation is always juicy, is always delicious, is always popular. It's always sweeping in at all times. It always presents itself as the next biggest, best thing that's going to satisfy all of your desires. And so you have to build a kind of discernment that sees that, that understands that, that is able to recognize the various forms of evil as they come down the pikeway, that's able to see all the various forms of evil that present themselves year in and year out, uh, leader after leader or movement after movement or whatever it might be, that you're able to see through the facade, and you abstain from all of it because you've trained your mind in the Scripture and you know how to hold fast to what is good. Lord, give us churches like that. Churches who cling to the truth, who are willing to examine, willing to make the difficult calls, willing to be unpopular when they reject the various forms of evil that come down upon us like waves of the ocean. Lord, give us churches that are committed to the truth like this and attentive to the Word of God and and willing to, to examine all these things even while they maintain an environment that's welcoming to every gift of the Spirit and an environment that is welcoming to all kinds of ministry, an environment that's patient with the weak, that's ministering to the faint-hearted, that's encouraging those who are, who are unruly, admonishing them if necessary, an environment where they trust God so completely that they're not retaliatory, 
an environment that's Godward in its focus, led by good spiritual leadership. It's kind of environment, it's kind of culture that fosters spiritual growth. You find a church like that, you're going to grow. You're going to grow spiritually. And you're going to see sanctification happening, not only in you, but in those around you. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we hear your word this morning and we are called by it to a standard of truthfulness and a standard of rightness and wrongness. Your word is not an impediment in our spiritual life. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. I pray, Father, that you give us the clarity of mind to understand it so that we can use it in examining all things. We need to hear your word. We need to hear it from teachers. We need to hear it from, from uh, preachers. We need to hear it from all those who are gifted to teach it in some way. You've given it to us, not in some partial form, but in the complete form, the complete prophecy. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us become a discerning congregation by it. Give us the courage and the boldness to cling to it to call out every form of evil. And Lord, give us this kind of culture described in these verses. Make us the kind of people that are, that are filled with this patience and this goodness, not returning evil for evil, but showing all endurance, rejoicing at all times, giving thanks in all circumstances, praying without ceasing, always with our mind toward you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.